This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Being that it's the holiday season, uh, during the month of December, we expect that our shows are probably going to be a little bit lighter-hearted than usual, because after all, it's the holiday season. Yes, Mr. Millen, thank you for that lovely holiday classic. And by the way, before we get too far in this program, we should give a congratulations to the good people that man the Saturday morning folk show here at KDVS. It celebrated its 35th anniversary last week. Wonderful article in the Davis Enterprise by Jeff Hudson, a man we've been meaning to get on the show, I don't know, for years now. Jeff uh, Jeff's a multimedia phenomenon, and uh, we need to talk to him about the article and see if we can't bring a couple of the current hosts on board to talk about uh, their, their fine efforts week in and week out. And I, of course, mean Bill Wagman and Robin Fox. We probably won't have a chance to interview uh, those three folks today, but uh, we'll see if we can't bring them on next week's program. Because, as we say, congratulations are indeed in order. But let us begin today's program, as we like to do, with our feature on this date in history. Our date in question is the 1st of December. And it was on December 1st in 1640 that Portugal reclaimed its independence after 60 years of Spanish rule. Yes, it was a proud moment for the freedom-loving Portuguese people when they were again able to be self-determined. Actually, that's not really true. They had a king like everybody else. And thanks to this idiot system of governance uh, <laughs> predominant in Europe, the king and the royal family and its various uh, movers and shakers and wire pullers pretty much ran things in any country you wanted to choose. Not if the truth be told, uh, I would say, are things all that different today. But this is a holiday show, so let's continue. And note that it was on December 1st in 1824 that Congress announced that no candidate had received a majority of electoral votes in the U.S. presidential election that year. The House of Representatives, as dictated by the 12th Amendment, then made a decision from among Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, and Henry Clay. Now, it's generally conceded that Jackson probably got the most popular votes in that election, but he was not well regarded by people in Washington. I believe Thomas Jefferson said that he could think of no one less qualified to be president than General Jackson, or words to that effect. And so it was that the Secretary of State and son of the former President John Adams was selected. John Quincy Adams only served one term because he lost the rematch with Andy Jackson in 1828. This marked the first of many times in U.S. presidential election history in which the guy that got the most votes did not become president. This happened most recently, of course, with John Kerry in 2004. Thanks to massive voter fraud, particularly in the state of Ohio, and oddly enough, uh, last occurred before that in 2000 when Al Gore beat George W. Bush. 
And by the way, as regarding the previous, uh, the opinion about John Kerry is that of this correspondent alone. It does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. This correspondent's opinion is widely accepted by people who should know better that George Bush actually won that election. And we would refer you to our archives for discussions over that event where, uh, well, we would say it just ain't so. But to continue, on December 1st in 1879, Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta HMS Pinafore had its first performance at the Opera Comique in London. Sullivan conducted the orchestra while Gilbert was a sailor in the chorus. Mr. McMillan? When I was a lad, I served a term as office boy to an attorney's firm. I cleaned the windows and I swept the floor and I polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up that handle so carefully that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Polished up the handle so carefully that now he is the ruler of the Queen's Navy. That's a great piece of music. All right, December 1st, 1881, Virgil, Wyatt, and Morgan Earp are acquitted of any crime for their actions in Tombstone, Arizona during the gunfight at the infamous O.K. Corral. That's something else we would refer you to our archives on. We interviewed historian Roger S. Peterson about that event uh, some years back. Roger is a local expert on uh, things ERP-related. And uh, to make a long story short, it didn't go down like the movie with Kirk Douglas. Or for that matter, the movie with Kurt Russell. Or for that matter, probably any movie about the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Boy, a lot of things happen on this day in history. December 1st, 1887, Scottish author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's character Sherlock Holmes first appeared in print in Study in Scarlet. Four years later, December 1st, 1891, Canadian doctor John B. Naismith invents the game of basketball at a YMCA in Massachusetts. How this sport has attracted legions of fans remains an utter mystery to this correspondent. I'm going to keep going on this. December 1st, 1903, the world's first Western, The Great Train Robbery, was released in the United States. Remember, 1903. That came from Thomas Edison's production company. It revived flagging interest in motion pictures with a 12-minute, my God, imagine, a 12-minute long story that first introduced film editing and the chase scene. Great day in the 1950s, December 1st. In 1955, on this date in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks was jailed for refusing to give up her seat on a public bus to a white man, which was a violation of the city's racial segregation laws. The successful Montgomery bus boycott, organized by Martin Luther King, followed Parks' historic act of civil disobedience. The boycott stretched on for more than a year, and participants carpooled or walked miles to work and school. By December 20th, 1956, Montgomery's buses were finally desegregated. And in 1959, on December 1st, 12 nations, including the United States and the Soviet Union, signed the Antarctica Treaty, which banned military activity and weapons testing on that continent. It was the first arms control agreement signed during the Cold War. Our quote of the day comes from Alphonse Carr, who said, Every man has three characters, that which he exhibits that which he has, and that which he thinks he has. A quip of the day comes from H. L. Mencken, who said, Christian theology is not only opposed to the scientific spirit, it is opposed to every other form of rational thinking. 
Our joke of the day, and I think I think we're going to go to the Dave Barry calendar. I know these are not necessarily jokes per se, but this is certainly humorous writing. And we'll pass for a joke on this program. Said Dave Barry, I'm not a fan of those high-tech public toilets with the automatic sensors that either A, become overexcited and flush themselves 37 times before you even sit down, or B, lapse into a coma, so that when you're done, you find yourself waving your arms like a lunatic and loudly remarking, well, I'm done, in an effort to revive your toilet so it will flush and you can leave, while the people waiting outside the stall wonder what kind of sick, perverted thing you're doing in there. And our stat of the day is as follows. 54.5, that would be miles per gallon, proposed by the Obama administration to be implemented by the year 2025. To which, we at Radio Parallax add, what's the rush? I mean, you hate to try and implement that thing 14 years in the future. My God, how will we make things move so rapidly? Yeah, apparently they're going to phase this in starting with the 2017 year models. Anyway, gu- gutsy move, Mr. President. At the rate he's going, that'll probably coincide with our troops coming out of Afghanistan, wouldn't you think? All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Apparently it was a good week a couple weeks back for buying a GPS with the word that a runner in the New York Marathon wound up spending two days afterwards trying to locate his car. Apparently Charles Petrasky, age 34, crossed the finish line in a little over three hours, which is pretty good, but then he realized he had no idea where he'd parked his Hyundai Sonata. Mr. Petraska said, I was completely disoriented. After calling Manhattan parking garages for two days, he remembered a billboard he'd seen while parking and was directed by the billboard's owners to a garage on 31st Street. Apparently it was a very bad week last week for anthropomorphizing with the word that a South African man was apparently savagely chewed to death by a 2,400-pound hippopotamus he kept as a pet. Humphreys, like a son to me, He's just like a human, said the late Marius Ells. And apparently it was an ugly week for air transport last week with the word that a North Carolina couple is going to sue Air Trans Airways for $100,000 because they claim they saw cockroaches on a flight. Harry Marsh and Caitlin Rush say the sight of cockroaches crawling out of an air vent caused great distress and forced them to throw away clothing in their luggage for fear of roach contamination. Does that seem reasonable? A hundred thousand dollars? I suppose if if their clothing included, like, a sable coat. Anyway, from the Only in America file, we have the following. Apparently, Americans last year filed 254 million prescriptions for opioid drugs such as OxyContin, Percocet, and Vicodin. That's apparently enough to medicate every American adult every American adult, around the clock, for a month. 
All right, let's do some follow-up. Um, we've been kind of ragging on uh, the MBA program, at least the ads for a local MBA program, in the Sacramento Bee, which has the tagline, Creating the Risk Takers of Tomorrow. We've pointed out that given the recent meltdown on Wall Street and the U.S. economy, that more risk takers may not be what we need. But uh, in a somewhat similar vein, our, our eye was caught by the ad in Mental Floss magazine for American Mensa. They may have hired the, the same ad company as the people for the MBA program. In, uh, in the ad for Mensa, a colorfully dressed individual wearing a propeller beanie is in free fall. And the copy with the ad is as follows. Michael Collins has fallen from the sky more than 500 times and earned gold, silver, and bronze medals at the National Collegiate Parachuting Championships. But he was still looking to fall in love. That's why he joined Mensa. <laughs> the implication being, we guess, is that if you can join a club uh, that makes you take an IQ test first to show that you're brilliant, you've now upped your odds that you can find a soulmate who presumably will then join you in jumping out of airplanes wearing propeller beanies. All right, and speaking of mental floss, we don't quote from that magazine a lot in this program because I, I, I tend to not always trust their scholarship, but they may have got it right with this one, and let's go with it. I think I'm swayed by the fact that they titled this piece Five Habits of Highly Effective Outlaws. Yeah, with a start like that, you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Credit to Mental Floss, Jesse James spent as much time honing his public image as he did robbing people. Said the magazine, James frequently wrote letters to newspapers stressing that his gang never attacked innocent farmers, only corrupt banks and railroad companies. Hmm. He also claimed lawmen hounded James and his brothers because they'd been Confederate soldiers, which won the gang sympathy in the South. His letters were widely reprinted, even in the New York Times, helping turn the Missouri bandits into national legends. Note of the magazine, one night in 1875, Pinkerton detectives threw a flare into the James family home. The agents were trying to light up the dark house so they could shoot at the outlaws, but the flare exploded in the fireplace, killing Jesse's younger half-brother and maiming his mother, who lost her right forearm. James made the incident seem even worse than it was in letters to the press, falsely claiming detectives had tossed a 32-pound military shell into his mother's home. The public was horrified, and after the explosion, Pinkerton agents received little help from Jesse's neighbors, who were often happy to provide the James gang with food, information, and hiding places. Who knew? By the way, Mr. McMillan's favorite movie, or at least one of his favorite movies of late, is... The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. A cinematic masterpiece. And I must confess, after you showed this to me, Mr. McMillan, I was a convert. It's a pretty damn good film. All right, let's go to our letters. Actually, in this case, it's not our letters. It's a letter to the Sacramento Bee, but we're going to commandeer it. Started reading this thing, and I went, wow. This person's hit the nail on the head. When writing... Regarding Delta Process Follows U.S. Law, another view November 13th, I can applaud Tom Birmingham's candid disclosure that the Bay Delta Conservation Plan is about water supply for south of Delta contractors. For too long, the peripheral canal has been touted as a, quote, conservation measure, unquote, when it's just the opposite. It's about taking more water out of the Delta. 
Phil Eisenberg, chairman of the Delta Stewardship Council, says the Delta exports have consistently increased over the past four decades from less than 3 million acre-feet per year to more than 5 million acre-feet. But that's not enough for the Westlands Water District and Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Delta communities have repeatedly attempted to assist and remain ready to partner in effective, reasonable Delta solutions. Birmingham's honest op-ed reaffirms once more that BDCP is about increasing exports, not restoring the Delta's ecological and economic health. That was written by State Senator Lois Wolk of Davis. To which we say... Senator Wolk, we are completely with you on that, and I think we need to bring you on this show to talk about this. Lois Wolk is speaking the truth. I can't believe they're trying to sell this thing as a Delta conservation measure. What a load of bull. In a related story, we refer to the travel section of the Bee, November 27th, uh, article by Lucy DeMott about Mono Lake. which notes that that anyone living in Northern California from the late 1970s on has seen the ever-present Save Mono Lake bumper sticker. Lucy notes that Mono Lake's existence is a modern environmental success story. It was saved in dramatic fashion by an unlikely coalition of trout fishermen, environmentalists, and water rights lawyers. The article shows a picture of a plank walkway along the shore of Mono Lake that would have been underwater before 1941. They also show these spectacular tufa towers which protrude from the lake. The article does not make it clear, but the reason that these towers are exposed is because the water level in the lake has dropped so far that these structures which were formed underwater are now above water. The article notes that Mono Lake is recovering from 50 years of abuse. In 1941, the city of Los Angeles began diverting all, yes, all of the lake's feeder streams for the city's drinking water. By the 1970s, the lake level was reduced by half, which increased its salinity. It was clear that none of the shrimp, flies, or birds, and by the way, 80% of uh, California's seagulls breed in Mono Lake every year, could have survived for long. After After years of legal wrangling, a compromise was reached in 1994, and half of the feeder streams were returned to the lake. The article notes the lake has continued to recover, And in the meantime, L.A. has become one of the leading cities in water conservation. Apparently, Ms. DeMott took a kayak tour around the lake, something this correspondent would dearly love to do one of these days. And uh, for more information, check out the article. It's probably online. And uh, we've made no secret about bagging on lawyers on on this show in the past for what we think are good reasons. But it's interesting to note that uh, Mono Lake was saved by, at least in part, the actions of some lawyers. Some of the good ones. And I have to admit, one of my uh, fellow DJs, uh, who's now a law student, sent me a a note a couple weeks back, and I sent her one back that said, uh, you know, uh, you know that we bag on lawyers in this program a lot, but, you know, some of you guys are great. But uh, we're not going to get all that warm and fuzzy over lawyers. Keep listening. We also want to give an attaboy to our, our pal Cosmo Garvin over at the Sacramento News and Review for his Bites column wherein he says the following. It bears repeating. The plan to subsidize a new Kings Arena is being specifically designed to avoid a public vote. There may be good arguments for that, but arena boosters should 
have to make it in the light of day. They know, even without the help of Councilwoman Sandy Sheedy's poll, that voters would reject public money to save the Kings if given the chance. Of course, boosters say there's just no time to put the thing to a vote and still meet the NBA's deadline to come up with a subsidy package. True enough if we're talking about run-of-the-mill ballot initiatives, but a referendum is a little different and can be qualified for the ballot as late as one month before an election. So, if someone's willing to gather about 30,000 signatures, it's still possible for Sacramento citizens to use the referendum process to reject any financing plan they don't like. Noted Cosmo, you know, uh, on the outside chance the thing turns out to be some sort of boondoggle. All right, we're up against it on time here, so let's uh, let's end this segment with the following bit of good news. At 10.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday, an Atlas rocket carrying the Mars rover Curiosity lifted off from Cape Canaveral successfully. NASA is doing backflips to, to avoid any mention of the fact that this probe is going to seek out uh, life or look for signs of life on Mars. I'm not sure why they're working so hard to lower expectations on this. But I guess there's just something about, you know, little green men and faces on Mars and looking for life that just leaves a bad taste in scientists' mouths. It's curious to note that back in 1976, we landed a couple probes uh, on Mars that were, I guess, uh, highly touted as, as, uh, as having a laboratory on board to look for life. And unfortunately, when the signs came back uh, to the negative, or at least on the balance came back to the negative, it sort of cast a pall over future, uh, future missions to Mars, which, which we should be going to. The science over the past uh, 35 years has shown us that the negative received by the Viking landers uh, as regards the search for organic compounds was probably a false negative because of compounds known now to be in the Martian soil. Uh, it was apparently able to look for organics down to like parts per billion and found none, which really puzzled people because uh, just if nothing else, uh, meteorites with carbon in them should have given a signal higher than that. So um, there no doubt is organic material on Mars. It just wasn't picked up the first time, and uh, we're going to have another look here hopefully in the summer, and we, of course, will be following that very avidly here at Radio Parallax which, by the way, you're listening to. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. Got plenty more in the next couple segments. Stick around. on me. Everybody always picking on me. Who's always riding on the wall? 